I'm always curious how people got into the research they're doing. And uh, I mean, for you, that's, is it fair to say psychology of climate change? Is that a good uh, yeah, that's my main, brief that's, summary? That's my main thing. And yes, I was wondering about that, but then I saw your article yawning at the apocalypse with Sander van der Linden. Uh, and at the bottom, it had like a very brief paragraph uh, that like something that each um, person said. And yours said, I see climate change as a defining problem of our era. In graduate school, I became aware that many barriers to sustainability are more social and psychological than technical or technological. And I think a robust science of decision making and collective behavior is necessary to overcome our challenges. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm curious because I also saw you had some initial research on sleep. Uh, yeah language or something like that yeah yeah, how did when did you make that realization that you this was the thing you want to work on before i went to graduate school and started publishing at all i was doing other things and so returning to do graduate school in psychology yeah i had been working at a hospital for some years which explained some of the health psych focus of the work in that era I guess I was just following what seemed cool um and I was pretty excited about all the Brian Wansink style like uh disappearing soup and things that uh, now yeah. seem to be largely unbelievable but that had led me into a certain set of work and then it was in this interesting time in graduate school which for me is in Santa Barbara with uh, my PhD mentor David Sherman where I was losing some interest in the work we were doing. Um, I, I was working predominantly for a couple of years on brushing and flossing behaviors. And while they are important... For teeth. Yeah, for teeth. Yeah. While, okay. while they're plenty important, um, I don't know, there was something about filming videos of people flossing and then communicating that in gain and loss frame messages and running big studies and then finding pretty small effects for matching. We did find some matching effects that... You know, if you find someone is more worried about losing their teeth, you should show them a persuasive message that's about potentially losing your teeth as opposed to having a great smile with a more gain frame message. Anyway, we did this kind of work. I was I was losing momentum. And then uh, it was right then that uh, actually two key friends of mine that were both doing master's degrees in environmental um, environmental science and management in a different school started talking to me about climate change. And really, I thought it can't possibly be this bad. Like, you must be wrong because surely the people in charge would be handling it if it is as bad as you said. So when was this roughly? 2010. And uh, it was that bad. And they people in charge weren't handling it. And I, I, I had this nice pivot. Um, my mentor was very responsible for helping me. I'm grateful to him. Yeah, aligning my personal interests, which were growing around environment with my professional skills, I realized, oh, actually this persuasion, this messaging, this behavior change, this understanding of motivation, this all tracks pretty well into environment. And it took me some years to build up momentum, but that was how I pivoted from what was a classic sort of hardcore theoretical social psych program into working on what other people consider applied topics. Although we could pause and talk about the difference between basic and applied research too, if you want. Yeah, um, I just had one one uh, thought that I have to say about the uh, flossing your teeth, uh, just because I never used to do it. And then I heard this thing about just do one tooth a day. That's all you have to do. <laughs> and that actually got me to do it because it actually, yeah, you just start with one, the easiest one oh, you wow. have, and then you get the technique down. And then actually now I floss every day, oh, even wow. for, year, for year, half a year, didn't have a mirror and did it. 
Um, it sounded like a silly idea when I heard it, but actually just tell yourself to floss one tooth. That's brilliant. And it's, then usually you, yeah. in the beginning I did, and then over time I actually ended up doing all of them. That's like the thesis writing advice. Open it and write, uh, you know, for two minutes. It's better than leaving it closed for a week. Yeah. And often you, and especially in the beginning, you might actually do that. Yeah, but, but that's then fine. after you get into so it. So proximate, attainable goals. Good, good lesson. Yeah, I mean, the, the I guess the idea there is also the the a goal that's so small you'd feel really stupid not to do it. <laughs> like no matter how your day went, you can always do that. Yeah, that's the Robert Cialdini approach, uh, famously called uh, "foot in the door." You make someone an offer mm-hmm. that is so small yeah. they can't reasonably refuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, that was just briefly on that. Um, but I was curious about first, like, were you already into? I mean, I guess it sounds like you weren't actually particularly like an environmental activist or anything like that at the time. It seems like you were also fairly, not naive, but you had a like generic kind of knowledge about it if your friends kind of told you all this stuff. Or Yeah, pretty generic, pretty uninformed. I was like, I had been aware of the ozone layer issues in the Montreal Protocol, but I guess I just had a yeah, pretty broad just concern that environmental issues were worsening, but not really any particular knowledge about it. I had grown up in an area in California that was very nature focused, I guess, culturally. So we were kind of hippie environmentalists by default, but I didn't have an academic connection to it. One of the few things I hear about California is all the fires. Does that kind of bring it closer to you? I mean, there's this whole idea about the the distance of climate change to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, we could talk um, about and California that. California seems like it's a place that has... That brings it actually quite close, right? If you're if half your place is burning every year, especially lately. So I don't remember those kinds of fires when I was young. I don't think they were happening in that region or not at that intensity. It's different now, but yeah, when I was growing up, what kinds of environmental issues were proximate to me? Litter, probably. That might be about it. I didn't, you know, like there weren't waterways that I was trying to swim in or anything. The air seemed okay. okay maybe to ask a very very large and also maybe very naive question which is what exactly is the problem of climate change so i mean there's there's (laughs) one which is (laughs) it's a simple problem is the the problem is that we pollute our atmosphere with heat trapping gases and uh, we can't burn any more of this carbon that we're digging out of the ground we have to stop doing that that's pretty much it. Okay, so that's the let's say so there's like kind of two problems in a sense, right? One is that the kind of like how how it works on a like very basic level, and the other is how do we actually do that? And I guess that's where the psychological I guess it's kind of what I introduced with the with your quotation, right? That yeah. um the the problem is not really technological but more psychological. So maybe to to I mean you address this in the yawning at the apocalypse article, kind of what are some reasons why yeah, we haven't done more about this and that this remains a problem. Well, you mentioned psychological distance before. I think that's a nice sort of basket term, although let's not assume that it means a single thing. But I like the idea that if you think about what are people trying to do functionally in every moment of their day, in almost none of those moments will you find some goal about what the temperature is going to be in Pakistan, you know, 20 years from now. That's just not what we evolved to do. So I I want to resist the painting that we 
didn't evolve to solve this problem. I, I think we also evolved very unique cooperation abilities that allow us to even potentially do this, talk about it like you and I are talking about it. It's not that we can't do it with our ancient brains, but it is useful to recognize that we we evolved for a set of functional challenges leading to adaptations that have almost nothing to do with timescales like that, uncertainties like that, distributed collective action problems like that. So it is a very unique, a uniquely difficult problem in the sense that we don't, we already don't appear to care through our behavior about things that are a lot closer to us and affect us quite personally. So why would we care about this? I mean, or even if we said, yeah, I care about it, why would that translate into concrete behaviors? I mean, you mentioned something that we don't really care about stuff that's much closer to us. One kind of analogy I thought of that I'm assuming is not original at all is that, you know, most people are overweight. And that's to some extent, there's some parallels, right? It's, I mean, this is happening to you directly, but it's something that, you know, it's going to happen in the future. Um, so there's this, this trade off between short term and long term thinking and all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I was just wondering, especially with your health background or that you had some interest in these kind of questions. I'm curious, is there anything that we can learn from that kind of stuff to inform how to think about changing people's behavior on climate change? Yeah, yeah, interesting. The first thing I'll say, and I'm a, I'm a couple years out of date on this, but I know that about five or seven years ago, the best summary of the literature in health psychology on sustained, you know, keep it off weight loss was people basically can't do it. Like there's no amount of uh, expert advice plus nutrition packages plus tr calorie tracking. Like it basically on average doesn't work. Now, some people can lose weight and keep it off. Of course, it, the world is a big place. But that's the first point. The second point is that uh, it's a really wonderful comparison because there's so many things that determine our weight that are not about our conscious intentional motives and desires and concerns, basically the whole psychological level. A lot of it has to do with like uh, structural features of the, of the environment, uh, the proximity, availability, and price of uh, fruits and vegetables, for example, whether we grew up eating them, um, you know, our cultural background, our current socioeconomic status. That is to say, lots of things that are basically outside of immediate psychological control. So I think of that way in the carbon footprint as well. So it's a it's a nice comparison. So does the the conclusion then also mean that we can't do anything about climate change <laughs> collectively long term? No, no, no. Well, you said the key I word. Mean, there. Yeah, you I'm, said the key word, which is collective. So if you wanted to change, you know, the weight of the nation, should you become a inspirational, motivational speaker and tell people that they really contain the power and that they can decide tomorrow to be a better or Maybe we could organize collectively to affect the public health of our neighbors through things that actually work, which we know, you know, through this kind of research, that thing. So the same I feel for climate, which is that we should be focusing on the highest impact behaviors and addressing them at multiple levels, not just as a consumer, but as a, as a person who has roles in our organizations and people who also engage in the public sphere, whether that's politics or activism uh, of all stripes. Okay, so what are 
some uh, let's uh, I actually don't know what the answer is um because I'm I'm fairly uninformed about the whole environmentalism and that kind of stuff so what what are kind of some of the the what are the biggest contributors and what are something that you can actually do as a you know as a person who's not maybe president of a country or something sure well i mean i think it's which i'm assuming most of my listeners are <laughs> it's it's actually kind of the same question as why would we ever vote i let's say in the us right now there's all this um frustration and uh, and also jubilation about the change in abortion access and people might think, you know, I'm not on the Supreme Court, so I have no power. But that's not really how politics work. You have to think about the fact that we, all of these institutions only exist because people legitimize them and participate in ways that sustain them or destroy them. And we have different institutions over time. So all of these levels of civic participation, engagement, conversation, etc., are absolutely effective. They're what turns everything. And we could talk about money as well, because it's not just a bunch of well-meaning people in town halls. But you asked also what is most impactful. And I would return, I would return to the fossil fuel extraction projects. So all over the world, governments are permitting new places to drill for oil and gas and tar sands and whatever else, and we should be pressuring them not to do those things. That seems very uh, available. So kind of what's going on right now where the, at least, well, I don't know, actually internationally, but in Germany, at least the Green Party is really, um, they're getting right now, I think often like almost a quote, a quarter of the vote or something, whereas before it was maybe like 10, 15% or something like that. So they almost like, yeah, doubled um, how many people vote. Is, is that then basically the best thing people can do? Uh, or is there, you know, because it feels like once every two years or four years or whatever, making a cross somewhere isn't exactly, doesn't feel like it's a huge action towards fighting one of the biggest problems out there. No. And I mean, I think there's particular gripe with the Greens in Germany, actually, because they seem from the outside kind of co-opted into the standard way of doing things like with small adjustment rather than creating a radically different uh way like complete electrification or let's just take a simple question in germany like the maximum speed on the motorway it turns out that going really fast in your car emits way more emissions than going normal speeds and like it's yeah. not no one is coming to take away everyone's car, but the idea of a maximum speed in Germany is so toxic that, yeah, the Greens won't even touch <laughs> yeah. it, it seems. So, I don't know. It seems very incremental. Yeah, you can't take that away from the Germans. <laughs> well, I love our speed. I don't, I don't want to take it away the from them. <laughs> I want them to realize their lives will be better if they, uh, if they organize it yeah. themselves. But, hey, whatever. So, I think, uh, I think... We used to think of activists as radicals. What's so unique about the climate crisis is that it is actually in everyone's best interest to participate in what looks like radical action that is actually quite mainstream if you look at the expected harms and benefits of their behavior. Like compare that with some other issue like abortion. If I was on here saying, we look, uh, the, uh, I don't know, the right to life for a fetus is so important, we should mass in the streets tomorrow. That's, a, that's an opinion that I've put my values on to others and suggested that they follow me. But with climate change, I don't have to put my values on others. Like if you understood the harms and benefits of our different pathways, I guarantee they would be wanting change as well. So there's a lack of information 
But there's not a value gap at all because what we're looking at is a society with better air quality, more walkability, better health, better integration, like more intentional uh, preservation of wild spaces. And yeah, our whole global economy around food depends on like 10 or 12 species of, you know, like corn, for example. We probably shouldn't disrupt these cycles uh, you know, or we'll be in deep trouble, that kind of thing. Everyone agrees with that already. I mean, not everyone, right? Otherwise, all the parties would be doing this. Or, or I mean, I guess I'm curious, like, it, I'm very non-politically informed and not particularly interested, um, so I don't want to turn this to, like, a political thing. But I'm, the, I guess the question I have is, like, like if everyone knows this, do the politicians think that they won't get elected if they do this or that they're afraid of, like, the short-term job consequences? Okay. Or do they yeah. not actually know that? Bef I don't know. Before the politician level, let's just distinguish between what I was saying is that we have the same values. We want to be healthy. We want to live in comfortable communities. We want to be able to travel easily. Uh, we want our, our liberties protected. And for me, liberty means like I want to live a healthy, safe life before what speed am I driving? But yeah. I, d I would never say that everyone agrees about uh, like the policy prescriptions. So as soon as you start talking about any specific change that we should make, you, yeah, you lose people, absolutely. But mo we spend a lot of time talking about climate deniers or people who shout on Twitter. But really, the, the people who are, you know, who in the 90s were saying it's not happening, who in the 2000s were saying it's happening and it's uh, not that bad, it's going to be fine, who in the 2010s were saying it's happening, it's bad, we're causing it, and now there's nothing we can do about it. Basically, this is a tiny little slice of loud people, and we shouldn't be thinking about them so much. I think we should talk about the big, mushy middle of people that are concerned, but maybe not taking, like, what's the one-tooth move for them? That's the group that I'm working on. Okay. Yeah, I once, uh, I once saw a meme or a tweet or whatever, I can't remember what it was exactly, saying that something like the, the most environmentally friendly people are probably the lonely gamers who sit at home all day and <laughs> like, just play video games. Like, no one's talking about how great they are for the environment. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, but I guess just like as, as an individual, what, what is something you can do? I mean, there's right now you hear about, you know, not flying so much or not eating so much meat. Is, is that the... You know, the, the, the biggest even if we all went can... vegan, uh, it's not going to solve the climate crisis. So I don't think that's the best way to think about it, actually. It's clear that beef is a big problem. So, okay, reducing beef is a good idea in general. I mean, also for one's health, the processed red meats seem to be um, a particular food group that's dangerous for us. Flying is interesting because it's only for a certain subset of people. Like if you could communicate something to everyone on earth, it wouldn't be flying because only a tiny proportion of people fly. But Well, but if that has a disproportionate effect. Well, yeah, but the people listening to you are probably largely among the kind of group that would fly. I fly myself. Uh, my family's back in California. I'm not a purist. I just fly a little bit less than I used to. <laughs> you don't row a boat. <laughs> I am going to take the train to uh, to Spain in a bit, and that's... That's a oh, little yeah. bit difficult. I saw your tweet yeah. about going from Paris to Barcelona. Yeah, it's a little how bit difficult. That is. I'm like, come on, guys! It was better connected 20 years ago. There was a night train between Paris and uh, and Madrid 20 years ago. There's not anymore. Yeah, yeah. I have to go to Copenhagen soon. That's not going to be fun no. The train trains to Copenhagen are terrible. Even from here, yeah. Yeah, I go through Hamburg, and it takes forever. Anyway, uh, yeah. the 
But flying, yeah, flying is pretty big. You could, you know, be, you could adjust your diet radically and your local travel radically and the heating in your house and you could do all this stuff and you take a couple long flights and it's blown out your budget for the entire year. But I don't want us to think about that as the home of the changes that need to happen because I like it's this isn't the kind of thing that we can solve in private. The the scale like maybe in the 80s, if we had all radically changed our lifestyles and quietly lobbied for local changes to how utilities are run. Maybe we would have had a different trajectory, but it's so late in the process now. We are so close to the edge of the waterfall that it's not ever going to be enough to do it that way. So we have to engage in the public, you know, civic spaces where there's regulation and legislation and prices as well. We could talk about how big prices are. Like psychology is not even really the best tool for this. I mean, I would much rather just, you know, rather than someone going to the store and saying, okay, which of these items have a high carbon footprint? And let me think about this and add 10 minutes to my trip so I can make a good decision that makes 17%. Like, this is already way too difficult. They should just not have as easy access to really damaging products. This is the same reason why you can't go to the store and buy lead paint. It's not, should I buy it? It's dangerous for my kids. It's like, it's just not available. Or it costs a lot, or there's you need to train and have use safety equipment when you use it, or whatever. Like our whole society is built around this, but long, long term issues are harder for us to bring externalities into the price. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean I want to move more towards uh, soon talking about your actual papers, um, and kind of one question that um, I guess we're kind of asking a bit, and that's also going to be relevant for that is this question of like what actually is pro environmental behavior, because when you study this in your in your studies, um, studies in your studies is great speech, um, but when you do that, um, you know you have to define who are the people who are pro-environmental and these kind of things uh, and how what kind of tasks can we use to uh, yeah just see how environmentally people friendly people behave so kind of how do you define that on a um, very specific experimental kind of basis yeah that was a i guess that was a heavy political segment we just did so let's talk about some methodology (laughs) it's like a very safe space for me nice yeah i spent a lot of time thinking about methods you know, the, what I, what I, let me explain how I started with this. In graduate school, I was looking for a measure of what kinds of behaviors people were doing that were affecting the environment. And then I was going to call it pro-environmental behavior. And some are high and some are low. We talked about meat and transportation and flying, that sort of thing. Okay, those are all on the scale that I developed. But I needed the scale to have certain properties for me to be able to use it. I needed, for example, it to yield a roughly normal distribution. I needed to aggregate across all of the behaviors, I mean, ideally equally, then I wouldn't have to weight them. And I needed the behaviors to happen frequently, or else it also wouldn't be normal. So what I ended up with was a set of judgments that are not really very much about impact. They're more like, how often do you do this? Sometimes is the answer. It's very, very, very hard to translate that into some kind of impact measure, but it is in line with something someone can comfortably remember and report to you and that yields the kind of psychometric features that makes it useful for modeling in our studies. So 
fast forward and you know publish a bunch of papers on this and I'm I'm still interested in that but I have come to believe that what we were measuring isn't isn't the behavior we thought it isn't the impactful behaviors that they're exercising on the environment I like to think of it more closely to intentions now it's kind of what they were imagining that they were doing their aspirational relationship to the environment so it's closer to an intentions measure and that is part of the reason why it's so well connected with all the psychological features. So I didn't mention before, but one of the reasons over time we select or reject scales is because of the linear relationships we can find with other scales. So it turns out the way I pose this, it, it correlates quite well with someone's environmental identity, with their concern about climate change, with their, I don't know what other variables, where you wouldn't find those kinds of relationships necessarily with uh, like a, let's say a linear measure of how many liters of water you used last month, which is probably best predicted by income. I should just say like actual impact is heavily constrained by someone's access to resources. And those people who have lots of access, those people who are rich, I count myself among them, like are going to use more resources. That's why I live in a house of this size. And if I didn't have enough money for this house, I would live in a smaller house. And so nothing, just nothing about my environmentalist identity that determined that I rent a apartment of this size. So, I mean, I guess, is there a bit of a conflict between, I mean, in part, also what people know about how environmentally friendly certain behaviors are? Ah, sure. I mean, one thing about, for example, like turning off a light bulb, uh, that's something I think, especially my parents' generation was really taught. I think it doesn't make a huge difference if you have LED light bulbs and they it didn't, didn't really use It didn't even make anyway. a huge difference back then, but way, way smaller difference now. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so you, so what you're trying to measure with um, those things is just how much people care. Is that kind of it? Yeah. Even if they might not do the right things, kind of. I mean, I guess it's a bit of a dig at a lot of the work that I used to do and that others have prioritized over a long time, which is this kind of boxes and arrows modeling theory of planned behavior or value belief norms or any of these sort of causal SEM style models, which is to say, if you're looking for strong effects between these levels, you're going to measure the variables in a way such that they end up having really high shared measurement variance and are constructed in a way that yields nice normal distributions, and you're going to get farther and farther away from impact. That's okay if we just knew that the end thing was, let's say, intentions and not actual, you know, behaviors. I mean, they are behaviors, like reporting it in a scale is a behavior, which is worth studying, by the way. But, uh, but like, I, I think I fooled myself that it meant something else for a while. So that has led me into a couple different areas of working on um, resolving this sort of over-reliance on, uh, yeah, or I don't know, over-interpreting self-report. You asked what is pro-environmental behavior, and I would say it is not one thing. It is a basket of issues that we collectively realize affect the environment to some degree. And some people would include how many children you have, and some wouldn't. And we all would include the light bulb thing because it was banged on about for decades. Um, but we would probably leave out some pretty large ones, like in the UK, the way that homes are insulated and weatherized is just really oh, appalling. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and they don't realize like how massive that is in reference to other 
more visible issues like carrying your bags to the grocery store or what kind of car you drive or something like that. So all of this, we can say, form a different different types of behavior. Some of them are curtailment, do less of something. Some of them are do more of something like engage with your local government or write your politicians or or consume something you think is eco-groovy. And... It's a good term. <laughs> very, very California from my era. I'm stoked to use such a word with you. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> good. Uh, but there's no reason to think in psychological terms that all of these behaviors form a single category in any given brain. That is to say, we can, we can decide that there's some sort of cluster, you know, of, of how someone relates to the environment, and we might call it something environmental concern, let's say. And maybe we ask about it in lots of different ways, and then we combine them and we get some aggregate, kind of like we would sample a personality space. So let's call it a trait. But the behaviors aren't like that, because like you said a moment ago, there might be a very important behavior that there's not even on their radar. They don't know that it's a pro-environmental behavior. So how would you then find it? It's not related to the other things in the list. And the behaviors differ a lot in impact, and they mean different things over time. And so behaviors aren't really clusterable in this way. And one of the things we've done in our group is try and move towards looking at fewer of them at a time, or one even. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Like, I mean, we, in the beginning, you mentioned that littering or something like that would would have been one of the things you maybe grew up with. And I just realized whilst we're talking about it, like in preparing um, this interview, I realized whenever I thought about pro environmental stuff, I could I never even thought about that. It was always about climate change and greenhouse gas emissions and that kind of stuff. I I never actually considered all the other parts that go into you know making life habitable in that sense like not throwing around your rubbish yeah um it's funny i guess how recently that's at least in my mind been kind of shifted from like one thing to or the focus has become much more on the uh making sure the planet doesn't heat up too much too soon well that's a really great point you've just made because if i asked a bunch of people you know how much do you think of yourself as an environmentalist not at all to very much and some people had in mind, okay, this is littering and air quality and water quality and uh, ocean temperature and acidification and corals and ozone layer, whatever. And other people were just thinking about global warming or they were just thinking about littering or whatever. Now they're going to give me a whole range of responses. That I didn't realize they were answering different questions because I never asked them what that meant to them. These are among the challenges of using words where we think we're saying the same thing that they hear. So is a simple question like how much do you care about the environment almost best then? <laughs> because then whatever people have in their own definition and knowledge sets and all that kind of stuff. Well, this is true of every single word, that. unfortunately. I mean, anything you use to clarify that to me, like the word knowledge, also depends on my knowledge sets. And if we were to drill this down eventually, we would be in the place of the logical positivists who were trying to create a kind of a mathematics of language, of rhetoric, yeah, and they failed because it's just too messy. Like there's no way to reduce this conversation to a series of propositions that are that testable. But we've settled into a kind of a Wittgensteinian functionalism where we can communicate good enough. But like, let's pay attention to the gaps and the places where we might fall. You know, you and I learned this language that we're speaking together in different contexts. So there are certain words that are more 
fraught than other ones or, you know, and we can pay attention to it and just try and bridge it. In in our case, maybe we should be more often asking people, what does this word mean to you? And then testing it back against our mental models when we develop the questions. They're never going to match up perfectly, but maybe they tell us a whole category of things we weren't thinking of. So maybe as a, uh, I guess I wanted to spend a little more time with this, but I guess otherwise we if we do it, it's going to take forever. So maybe as a, can you um, briefly summarize who is pro-environmental? Uh, like kind of what person is, it seems to me a lot of your research is about this, right? Like kind of relating that, yeah. that kind of behavior to other constructs we have. So yeah, who's environmental and, and why? If you follow the literature, the most, the modal sort of uh, prototypical environmentalist appears to be female, young, high education, politically left, and more often in a kind of a yeah, like rich Western context. So everyone who takes part in a psychology study. <laughs> yeah, actually, they are overrepresented. That's true. Um, except for the income thing because of, um, yeah, they're often students. But they, they have maybe high family wealth relative to the globe, certainly. This group is very high in intentional, sort of conscious, reflective environmentalism, where they've learned something about ecological systems, about psych, you know, psychological distance and geographic and time distance, and they thought, well, actually, I do care about this, and I'd like to do better. That's all true, and I don't want to minimize that when I say, maybe that's not the thing we're most interested in, whether people think of themselves as environmentalists. If you were to classify it like impact— then the best environmentalists among us are those who are just using the least resources and taking up the least space. And, you know, it's, I, I saw the other day that uh, Elon Musk made a, a seven minute flight from somewhere in central California to somewhere else in central California. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's absurd. Like, uh, it's easy to point at that and say that's absurd. And it would also be easy to point at someone living in a hut in extreme circumstances and say, I would like you to have a refrigerator and be a little bit more comfortable and maybe have access to medical care. You know, uh, it's this in-between space where we have to negotiate what to do. And who is an environmentalist? There's not, I'm not at all interested in policing this group or defining it or whatever. I think the, the most useful frame is just to imagine we can all do a little bit better and there will be benefits way beyond the environment. Yeah. And I guess I was also asking about you. Um, so you have quite a lot on research on also identity, how kind of, I mean, that's you know, going back to the political stuff we mentioned earlier, how basically, yeah, if you see yourself as this kind of person, then you'll act in a certain way. Um I mean, for example, I mean, the, the article I'm thinking right now and which I have open in front of me is your um, green to be seen and brown to keep down um, article. Yes. Um, I guess which kind of roughly says that uh, if I'm, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, that if you have a high visibility behavior, so something that is quite clearly signals an identity, then, you know, your identity around uh, environmentalism is going to hugely impact whether you do that or not and to the benefit or detriment of uh, or independent of um, the the effect of the environment of that behavior on the environment that's right and let's make it a little bit less abstract so take a behavior like carrying reusable bags to the grocery store 
Basically, they everyone knows that other people can see them doing this. And the, this behavior has social meaning. It implies certain kinds of group memberships and identities, and maybe someone does or doesn't want to have that identity. So if you're a young progressive left woman in an urban setting, maybe you're like, yeah, I like that identity. That's fine. I'll do that. And maybe if you're a rural, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, guy who works in the fossil fuel industry and not in a city and a little bit older, maybe you don't want to be carrying a canvas tote bag that says, I love the earth on the side of it, because it represents identities that you just don't want to hold. And what we showed was that the identity, of course, people who want to think of themselves as environmentalists are reporting more of these behaviors across the board. Yeah. But the visibility seems to matter so that highly visible behaviors, identity matters more. And for the low visible behaviors, like how much water you use in your home, it's less important because other people can't see it. Right, right. Yeah. So while you're talking about identity and just because you mentioned Elon Musk earlier, um, I guess one thing, is it fair to say that one thing he did that really helped the environment is make electric cars cool rather than, so basically now suddenly if you are someone who um, doesn't think of themselves as an environmentalist, um, they might before not have bought a Tesla because they, or any electric car because they thought, oh, that's just for the weirdos who, you know, are hippies or whatever. But because now Tesla is such a cool company suddenly everyone wants the car yeah that's is fair that kind of his biggest contribution uh, uh almost more than i don't know where the biggest contribution but yeah i guess i just realized that was too many of his other ventures don't seem very connected to climate issues like in a helpful way to me like space exploration i'm for it i think it's interesting but like colonizing mars while we have a burning fire in our backyard doesn't make a lot of sense to me Like we should probably solve our local issues and then we can colonize other planets. So I feel like his net effect is probably quite negative in terms of focus, in terms of public opinion, in terms of culture shift. But yeah, I'll give him that win is that um, it's great that, uh, you know, young people who or old, whatever, anyone who wants to be cool and not at all thinking about climate might end up with a fully electric vehicle, even though there's just zero environment part of it in their motivation. They end up there because it's a because it accelerates faster, because it looks cool, because it's the thing, whatever. Yeah, that's great. That's all positive. And it's a good example of the kind of behavior shift we need. What we do not need to do is make everything into an eco groovy tote bag and convince everyone to have different values. Now, bullshit, and also way too hard, what we need to do is show the ways which are already true in which the transition uh, like serves everyone's existing interests. I guess the kind of last article of yours I'd like to talk about is the Illusory Essences article from, from this year, actually. I guess now is maybe a late time to say to anyone new to the podcast, I put references into the description so you don't have to check like search for the papers or anything. Yeah, maybe we can go through this very classically first. Maybe what are essences and what makes them illusory? Yeah, we got into this project um, because we saw that certain words were being used across psychological science and, and the social sciences more broadly with a lot of oh um, credulity about what it was that they meant. So we touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's fine in some disciplines for some purposes to use a word and maybe not know exactly what your receiver hears when they hear the word. 
So for example, let's say in theater, I may not need for the performance to be successful for uh, the audience to understand the intended meaning of the phrase. But science is a different enterprise. We do need for reproducibility to really understand what was meant and make sure that there's correspondence between the design and the, the, yeah, the intended meaning and the heard meaning. And it turns out that there's a particular problem with familiar words. I mean, I think, I think of this back to childhood and, and arguing with people about a word like soul, wh- whether there is one. There's basically no winning this argument on either side because you don't even agree about what it means. And all the words you would use to define what it means, let's say afterlife, all themselves are also undefinable and difficult, all, sort of all the way down. And this was Wittgenstein's main uh, observation about philosophy, and we're kind of just extending that to specific cases within psychology and social science and saying, we also don't know what we're talking about. We use words in a functional way to accomplish aims, to get things done. But if we really want to make sure we're carving nature at the joints, it's going to be a little bit harder, and here are our suggestions. So... It turned out there was more work on this than I thought when we were first writing this paper as we dug in and the the review process was actually quite helpful, although very effortful. I discovered a bunch more consistent work with this, which, yeah, it was great. So there's all this work on essentializing, which is the, you know, the process by which we hear some term, whether it, let's say, motivation and then it activates a bunch of other related concepts for us, and we may have a sense that we know what it is. Even if you drill all the way down and you ask the very, very highest experts, what is motivation? They might say it's not a single coherent thing. But someone on the street would hear that word and think, ah, that is a thing. Like it's unitary. We can use it in our causal models. It can predict things and cause things. It's the same for everyone. All of these assumptions are violated. And so we stepped through a number of examples. um, And what was really fun for me in this project was that it wasn't social psychology. We spent very little time in my discipline. We spent a lot of time in other areas like clinical and uh, biopsychology, visual neuroscience, stepping through questions like what are edges being detected by cells in V1? What is attention? What is a, a, a psychiatric diagnosis? And showing that the same sort of assumptions that come to bear when we say, you know, someone is autistic uh, as saying that a cell in V1 is an edge detector, that it's, there's certain circularity issues and an obfuscation of mechanisms that is coming up all the way across psychological science. It wasn't the first time someone had made this argument, but it was my first time learning about it through writing the paper, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, in some sense, it seems to me that this is, I mean, is this almost a central and almost unique problem to psychology that we are dealing with topics and themes that everyone kind of knows the words of, right? It seems to me that there's a specific kind of problem that you have if everyone on the street more or less thinks they have an idea of what you're talking about versus... I mean, I guess lots of people have think they know what quantum theory is or whatever, but at least I think I'm assuming comes from a very specific definition, which 
is kind of new and outside of what people talk about every day anyway. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And even with quantum stuff, you know, if you get into it and you say, okay, there's up charm and there's top charm and like very quickly people realize they have no idea what, like they, they have heard the label, but that doesn't mean anything functional to them. Yeah, I have, for example, no idea. Yeah, for me, it's just like an example from yeah, yeah, physics. The basically. point is like there is no intuitive understanding of that. Basically, you can master the equations and then you can operate on it as a, as a unit uh, in some sense. But it, it, it doesn't even need to exist. I mean, as like a, as the kind of essentialized or what is sometimes called reified feature of nature, like here it is, here's the chunk. And you're so right that we uh, are especially vulnerable to this because of how verbal our science is. Now, there are psychologists and others working on formalizing and like through computational models, for example. And I, I think that is one of the resolutions that we need. But it will find, I think, using those kinds of models, that we lose a lot of the, what, the questions we started with. So, for example, I'm, we might think that a well-formed research question is, what motivates people to do something about climate change? But it turns out if you want to answer this research question as phrased, you also need to know what motivation is, and it's not a thing. I mean, it's not one thing. And so uh, we, we can pose well-formed research questions and solve them computationally. But right now, they're not generally the questions we wanted. So how do, I mean, I'm in general, you know, I come from psychology, but also did a master's in neuroscience. And in a way, I'm kind of stuck in between thinking like, yes, formal models are the way, but also not quite having the skills to actually do it. Um, <laughs> I don't have the skills and... to do it either. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I am like slowly working at it. And, you know, that's one of the reasons one of my, one of the first people I actually contacted for the podcast who I didn't know personally was Paul Smordino because of his article. Um, I mean, a few of his articles, but one of them, um, why formal models are stupid and we need more of them or whatever, something like that. So I'm just, I'm just, so like, I'm in a way like very much like stuck in between kind of this, uh, these two approaches and almost. And I'm just curious, like, what do you mean by, uh, like you change the question you were asking or you can't ask certain questions with a formal model versus a verbal model? I'm, I'm probably getting a little bit too far outside of my expertise here, speculative, but let me explain what I meant, which is that um, this is the same sort of issue with the logical positivism I brought up earlier. But basically, if you want to work only with formal units, then you ha it constrains the types of questions you ask, because you can only ask about things that you can model. And so if there's something that you know the word for, but you don't know how to model it, then it can't go in. And that's most of the questions social psychologists ask. Yeah, I guess, especially because we care about very complex things and have yes. very little mathematical training. <laughs> the combination of the two is probably not a good, yes. good one. I think that's fair. And, and it's not that these questions are all illusory. But rather, they are so difficult and yeah, multi-level individual thoughts, interactions, yeah, that it, it is defeating our current approaches, let's say. Okay, so um, I'd like to maybe talk about to kind of flesh out what exactly illusory essences are to flesh out some examples. Um, I don't know, is there anyone from the article that you would like to talk about? Otherwise, we could um, go through some 
like, yeah, like personality ones that I um, prepared. Or no, let's let's go to your personality ones. Okay, so uh, I mean, you've so in one of your studies, let's see which one is it. It's the Brick and Lewis from 2016, unearthing the green personality, which was his idea. And uh, so there, for example, one of your main findings is that uh, specific behaviors are more related to certain um, of the big five personality traits. So now kind of my question is, in a very simple way, are the, is, the, is the big five one of these illusory essences you're talking about? Or is that an actual thing? Or yeah, how do we think about that in the context of this paper? That's a tough question. I do think it is a useful model. And I do think it's defensible in cert with certain criteria. But maybe we shouldn't go as so far as to saying it exists. It's it's like a it's it's a carving of space. So well, sorry, I guess uh, one thing to maybe to clarify, I guess there is a difference between the big five and each of the individual factors. Um, yeah, I'm not sure which one I mean really. But even even if you took a five factor model or a four factor model or a ten or whatever. Like you're going to leave out some things and you're going to highlight some things and none of those decisions are resolvable. I mean, in a, in a sort of classic permanent way, they're all just gradations of different criteria. Let me, let me read a couple of quotes for you. This from, from what? I'll mention. Yeah. Sanjay Srivastava, one of the, one of the leading, um, you know, originators of, of the big five models that we're using these days recently wrote, models of personality structure are not correct or incorrect. Instead, they are either useful or not for some purpose. As a result, a researcher's choice of a model will depend on their priorities. Priorities include maximizing variance accounted for, parsimony, cross-language generalizability, relevance to theory, potential to synthesize across studies. And so whether the hexaco or any other model is best will, depending, will depend on the value a researcher places on these and other criteria. And I, I really like that quote because look at the connection back to Wittgenstein. It's functional again, like not just the words we use, but also the models we select. We select them because they make sense to other people, because we can appear to do things with them, not because they are the end answer to how nature is carved at its joints. I mean, this is also a rephrasing of the, the box quote, right? All models are wrong, but some are useful seems to me saying more or less the same thing, right? Yes. I think that was a different point, which is about simplification. But I, it is actually the same uh, result. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know the context of that quote. I just know the... I, I, I think that was it. more about this sort of uh, like um, Borges. Uh, I don't know if you know this writer, famous short story where they have a kingdom and they have the... cartographers who create a map the size of the kingdom yeah. one to one. The whole point is like models can't be one to one. Like the models are wrong because they're simplified. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Sanjay said in another paper, he said, uh, this is about the trait level now. Thus, if we want to know what extroversion is or any trait or factor really is and why it's in the five factor model, we should be asking, what good does inferring someone's level of extroversion do for the perceiver? What can perceivers do with their perceptions? And that's a weird way to think about it because we want extroversion to kind of exist in this essentialized way, separate from the perceiver. But I, it, it may not, not, not in the way that comes to us intuitively. This actually relates really closely to something I wrote down, um, which is 
this kind of weird interaction between so if you're I mean, I wrote it down, but it's not a super <laughs> well-defined uh, sentence. Uh, it's more like an idea. Uh, the, the general idea I had is that basically because you are, because we are um, trying to understand humans and humans have these biases, um, if a researcher has a bias about how human behavior works and it's shared with humans in general, then it's maybe not so much of a problem because, the, you know, if, if I guess the extroversion is a good example. If people think extroversion is a thing and use that uh, reason about how other people might behave then even if it is a kind of a human bias in the in the model in a sense is also correct because you're modeling something with a bias kind of if you know what i mean yes yes i think that's true of many many issues of the scientific process like all the way down a lot of cultural questions and when they overlap nicely between you and the participants you don't notice them <laughs> yeah exactly and so it seems to me yeah i guess if I understood him correctly, it's with extroversion, it's kind of similar. If people actually have this essence in their mind of what extroversion is, then it's actually sensible to use it. And I think it is sensible. And and you going back to the paper, we found that what predicted these self-reported sort of more intentions style behaviors uh, for to help the environment, more than anything, was openness to new experiences. And that kind of makes sense because in terms of uh, how innovations get diffused through a population, there's going to be a small group of people who are looking outside of the routine, you know, not not a current Tesla driver, like a Tesla driver 10 years ago, or however many years ago, I don't know how many it was. Yeah, so there are early adopters of pro-environmental behaviors as well. And these people tend to be high in openness. So do you think your results will change if you test this in like 20 years? Absolutely, they could. Absolutely. Because there's nothing fundamental about openness and uh, doing something that's pro-environmental per se. I mean, we made some arguments in the paper for why that might be, but I, they might be overwhelmed by other things. So one of the components of openness is counterculture, like acting a little bit outside of the normal. If the normal were pro-environmental, then the counterculture high openness people are going to be anti-environmental or whatever, higher impact. So, yeah, totally could change. And it's already going to be different between countries. Just as a like um, personal thing, like does that bother you potentially that the research you do could change, like the results from what you're doing could change so quickly? Like one thing I always think is about is like I'm really interested in psychology, but I think like uh, as a scientist, I'm I, I kind of want to have like universal principles that seem to hold between species or whatever. And um, yeah, I, I dream of that. I aspire to that. It doesn't just it just doesn't seem to be possible. This is just not the messy place I live. But it with these kind of questions or topics you're interested in, or yeah, I mean, social psychology broadly speaking, it's just almost none of it has that cleanliness. But even psychology broadly, you know, we seem to only have two things that we call laws. That's pretty few. <laughs> Wait, what are they? Oh, yeah, what is I think it? I should know. Um, you're the Yerkes-Dodson law, and then there's uh, the, law of of, the, the law of effect, you know, where you dov double a st stimulus, uh, and uh, it, but it's not perceived in linear. It's perceived exponential. Oh, those things, like the, the, the 19th century psychophysics experiments. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's okay. the last place we found really nice, tight, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 150 years ago, nothing has happened like since. Yeah. Black body radiation style graphs that we can really predict exactly where things are going to land. Yeah. 
And I guess the other one is uh, one thing that always replicates and always works is the uh, Stroop effect. Oh, sure. That's something that's sure. just always a super strong effect. Yeah, it no turns out you can people. you can reliably push it around, but yeah, it's very very um, it's very much there and almost always detectable. Yeah. Okay, but so you don't mind? I I mean I mind I mind it bothers me, but it doesn't bother me as much as saying, well, let's just forget it and let the climate be whatever it is and uh or yeah forget environmental issues even just as an intellectual who's interested in psychology and human behavior uh, there's no way out but through uh, we're in a kind of a proto-scientific phase here a kind of a pre-darwinian phase that's fine let's do our best and i guess it also doesn't have to maybe you won't change who knows uh yeah i mean right. things might I mean, stay this is, we're just assuming yeah. yeah change could be stable um, yeah, it's just like it's also one of those thoughts I had, kind of when when reading, like okay, so there's what's this openness, consciousness, and extroversion were related to emissions reducing behaviors. Like, what does that mean? What does <laughs> that mean? But imagine that we had run this study again, and it was all about impact. It was all about say tons of carbon equivalent emissions released over a year. It, then what would predict it? And actually, I don't know. We haven't we haven't done that, but I, I don't think it would be the same pattern. I suspect conscientiousness would still be in there because it is associated with dutiful sort of paying attention to things and following through. And those people are the people who are going to compost and everything else. Yeah, I guess apart from extroversion, I guess openness conscientiousness do right now seem like very sensible. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I guess it's, it's your answer then kind of to whether. So, yeah, I guess the idea is then that they are not necessarily illusory essences, those traits of the big five, if... I mean, this is becoming a bit circular, but if they measure something you're interested in. <laughs> yeah, I think it all depends how much essentializing we do depends on how we're using and hearing the term. So another another scholar, Tal Yarconi, he, let me read you a brief quote, see if it answers your question. He said, in practice, when people ask questions like how many dimensions, how many personality dimensions, what they're really asking it, whether or not they realize it is something narrower, namely... How many roughly orthogonal dimensions can we measure in a small time while capturing a non-negligible fraction of observed intra-individual differences in personality? Because, you know, it's they didn't imagine their—now this is me again. They didn't imagine their question how many dimensions included those constraints, but if you drill down, of course they do. They don't mean watch someone for 10 years and then construct a personality model of them. So uh, it, it just means that we have to be careful about the words we use, but it doesn't mean we can't use them. And uh, by the way, another issue like attention, it's not that there is no attention. It's that it's probably not just a unitary, simplistic thing that we can refer to with one word. Maybe we should be breaking it out into a couple different core dimensions, something like that. And we just fractionate more and more. That's what sciences do, and that's normal and healthy. And eventually you get to some unit that's maybe not divisible, and then you stop. That's fine. I guess you kind of also write about this a bit in the article then. Is, is the analogy here this, you know, what is life and the Elan Vital? And that kind of stuff. And then going like, actually, you know, all this thing, that's what's life and, you know, all this kind of stuff, to some extent, boils down to genes replicating. Yes. Um, or whatever it might be. And I mean, we could talk about consciousness as a defining feature that seems really weird about living versus non-living matter. 
But I think on a functional level, once you see how genes cause certain structures to combine and reproduce, then you don't need these other uh, Elan Vital kinds of essences. You can let them go. I think that will happen in psychology as well. So at some point, well, I don't know what the attention literature is, but let's say it isn't at that point. Then at some point, it's going to be like there's no thing as attention, but suddenly people start talking about this other process thing that's sure. much more clearly defined. And yeah, and it, I mean, and there may be there may not be simple answers to that either. Maybe it turns out to be some other complex thing. And we need we can't always go more complex. We have to stay parsimonious and concise, or else we're going to have trouble communicating and understanding what we're doing. So it's a it's a balance between them. But I guess that's that's one of the beautiful thing about evolution and natural selection and this gene view of life is that it is pretty straightforward. It is. This isn't like some super complicated thing. And this is why um, it's, it's uh, most people's favorite, you know, favorite theory in all of science because it's just extraordinary the kind of complexity that it explains. Yeah, yeah, I find, yeah. It's, it's one of those things that some, occasionally, uh, for whatever reason, I'll be thinking about natural selection. I mean, I don't really read much about it, but occasionally I'll be thinking about a thing like. This is such a crazy concept once you, once yeah. you think about and it. And once you start to be a psychologist in your own life and say, you know, I like this couch or I don't like this couch or this person or I'm in traffic and I got angry and think about it from that lens, it gets very confusing what feelings are, you know, ours or, or those sorts of layers of, of identity ownership for me become confusing. Yeah. Um Maybe we already alluded to a bit earlier to how to solve, or like yeah, how to solve some of the problems that come from this um, these illusory essences. I mean, we already mentioned formal formal models as one potential solution with its obvious drawbacks. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned four four strategies in the article. Um, do you maybe want to yeah briefly summarize what those are? Or- let me just take let me take one of them. As an example, we were talking about pro-environmental behavior earlier. If you take a kind of an illusory essences lens to this, instead of assuming that it's a thing, a unitary thing, and then measuring it and then predicting it from some other variable like concern, we might want to start by treating the single unit first. So that would be like, okay, what affects how much water people use in their home? In what context are people using water? What appliances? When do they make the actual physical behaviors that determine that? What kind of leakage is leading to usage that they're not even doing with their hands? And what are what's going on around all of these behaviors, including the non-psychological parts like the price and uh, the, the regulations around the size of the home and I don't know, whatever else is going on. Then you can say, okay, I understand the behavioral system around water use. And the voluntary part of it seems to be this big. And you can say, this is even what they could do if they wanted to. It's not the whole thing. We can't treat psychology like it's the only tool in the, in the, in the toolbox. Then if you really understand the behavior, then you can start to descriptively investigate what kinds of factors that psychologists might work with are most relevant here and compare things like demographics to thoughts behaviors feelings motivations efficacy whatever our favorite our favorite flavors and see which ones seem most relevant then when you have that and you do it across populations and contexts you say oh actually we had this whole science about uh, water use but it turns out it only applies to suburban homeowners in the american west maybe we should study some people who live in apartments 
Uh, yeah, that seems obvious when you say it like that. But in the literature, you'll often find that you haven't done this exploring of an effect or by different contexts exactly because it really screws everything up. Like it, it, it now it adds a ton of variance to whatever you were studying. It makes it confusing. It makes effects hard to detect. But you, you can't just like skip that step. So one of the basic uh, things is don't assume that it's one thing. Look descriptively to see how it varies across contexts. And we make the point that that's exactly what uh, Darwin did when formulating our favorite theory of natural selection. Looked at beak sizes across different islands. There were no t-tests. There was no uh, SEM model. Like it was look at the descriptive variance. So nice. Yeah. And I guess if people are interested in all the other strategies or anything else, then they can read the article. We have one more strategy that's fun. So I'll mention it. And it, it's the use unfamiliar, unfamiliar labels when we're talking about concepts. So let's say I really wanted to study motivation. I shouldn't say necessarily the word motivation because it activates all these concepts for you. And you might be confident that you know what I'm talking about. But if I call it uh, bazorgazorg instead, and then I tell you it has these features, it has these predictors and outcomes, whatever, you might be less likely to assume it's one thing. I know what I'm talking about. I've measured it well, validly, reliably. I've looked at it across different populations. Like basically, you bring all the appropriate scientific skepticism to an unfamiliar term. So when scientists are staking out areas or concepts, whether they're personality traits or anything else, you know, one of the suggestions is that we call things by unfamiliar names. It's going to make the science harder to communicate and harder to get onto talk shows and write, uh, you know, popular books about. You don't end up with uh, a thinking fast and slow kind of book if you call those difficult words rather than system one, system you two. You get the science of bizarre, bizarre. Yeah, the science of bizarre, bizarre. Yeah. But... Um, but it it is probably more careful, incremental, um, reproducible, you know, like a, appropriately skeptical science that would lead to a better cumulative result. I should say, by the way, Kahneman has said clearly system one and system two don't exist. But you could really fool people who have read that book and think that they exist. I mean, the whole thing is kind of to use them as a tool, but it's so easy to essentialize that and think that you could go into the brain and find system one somewhere. It's not there. Yeah, I know what you mean. And to be fair, I wasn't, I can't remember, it's been so long since I've read that book, but I remember once hearing an interview with him where you also mentioned like, these aren't things, don't look for the neural corridor to system one or system two. But I have to admit, I think until I, if I remember correctly, if I, until I listened to that interview, I wasn't fully aware of that he didn't really mean it as an actual thing. I think it's really hard to hold both of those concepts in mind simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, so one, so I, I, I agree, actually, I quite like that point too. And I thought like, this is actually a really nice way to kind of, by, by just making up a word. So you, you become aware that you're starting with zero and you have to fill in the knowledge That's right. um, that you that you came like stuff you found out. Um, but like the, one of the immediate criticisms that I thought was like, doesn't isn't this kind of the criticism that people make up jargon and that kind of stuff and that it just overcomplicates things because then I have to learn your words and all this kind of stuff? Yes, that's a very fair thing. And uh, we uh, we have yeah constantly an issue of communication effectiveness. I guess the thing about jargon is that it's often used to signal boundaries of different types of 
people or scholars, like if I say intersectionality, you hear certain types of researchers, as well as what I actually meant by the term. I hear something, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it is meant to not reduce the complexity, actually. I mean, if you ask them to sort of define, are you saying there's a interactive moderation such that uh, you're high in this and you're high in that, and then it, there's a nonlinear, and they're like, we don't want to define it like that, because the point is it's complex, and I, that's my experience of talking to sociologists and others who like this term. A lot of times jargon is for these signaling between groups, even among scholars. But sometimes it's also to prevent someone from understanding what you wrote. So anyone who reads some, uh, like, uh, I don't know, Heidegger in particular is an absolute beast. Uh, it was very difficult to understand. And some of that is, is like, uh, it looks pretty intentional. Like, it's just really, if you load your sentences with 10 prepositions and a bunch of undefined terms, no one can tell what the hell you're talking about. That kind of jargon should always be avoided. But if you make an argument which has only one new word in it, bazorp you know, and and you, and, they, and you construct it and you say, we don't know what this is. Here's how we're going about trying to understand it. See what you think. Then that doesn't sound like jargon to me. That sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah I definitely see what you mean. I mean, is this something, I mean, also, is this something that you actually do in papers or is this something more, I mean, first of all, do you actually do this or is it more uh, like, do you use this strategy? I use this metaphorically right now. I haven't actually done it, um, partially because I don't believe that I'm discovering totally, you know, terra incognita. There's some jargon for you. I don't think I'm... Well, no, but I, th yeah. but I thought the point was not to, to use it for new things, but rather let's say you're studying pro-environmentalism, you just say, okay, I'm not going to use that word anymore because no one knows what it means. I'm going to use ah. this thing. I thought you meant it also in this way. In practice, I guess I haven't been introducing new terms, but instead saying, I don't know what this is, and this is how we're going about trying to look at something smaller. So it's kind of consistent with this, but uh, without using the new term. Cool. Well, I guess I'm, I'm looking forward to some of the terms you come up with. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess I've run through my questions. Unless you have anything else, I just stop recording now. I would just, um, I would just like to say to everyone who's made it this long, well done. And also, uh, there's <laughs> no, there's no purism about uh, the right kind of environmental actions to take. It's more like uh, everyone's welcome, and uh, we're going to be able to do it together. A bit like the open science thing. Like every little helps. Yeah. Do your best. Come get a badge. Not a kind. Of... <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> if uh, if anyone wants to hear more about our work, you can find that at CameronBrick.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll link that. So I always have like website, Twitter, Google Scholar in the description, and yeah, references for the papers we mentioned. <laughs>